Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 13. Glory to you, O Lord. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, o Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When something tragic happens, when something bad happens, especially when something bad happens to a good person, we who are people of faith, most of us, want in one way or another to understand that, to be able to explain that, to be able to answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Some people of faith respond to that with a faith statement, like, for example, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, which actually Paul kind of says in our second reading for today. And it's true. No doubt, but said in the context of a tragedy, the assumption that comes masked beneath that statement of faith is the assumption that the tragedy is something that God did give you, that God dished out, something God is responsible for, something, in other words, that was the will of God, because otherwise it never would have happened. But take heart, because God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Those of us who do say things like that, I think, find more comfort in the thought that God is in charge and in control of absolutely everything, as opposed to thinking there are things that happen that aren't the will of God, but rather the will of someone or something else, or maybe some things that aren't the will of anything at all. Maybe they're just random, which we find to be really scary. So we stick to our faith that God doesn't give us more than we can handle, even though that leaves us between the lines anyway, essentially telling, for example, Ukrainians or the parents of a young man who took his own life that the reason they are going through what they're going through is God. But take heart, we can say, for God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Let me be clear, I surely do believe it is true that God doesn't give you more than you can handle. But I also believe it is surely every bit as true that God's desire is to give you the strength to handle whatever it is you are given. 
even and precisely when it isn't God who gave it to you. And that, I believe, is a sermon that could be preached in Ukraine today or at the funeral of a young man two weeks ago. An alternative explanation people of faith commonly offer, or at least think to themselves, by way of distancing themselves from the scary thought that some tragedies or suffering may in fact just be random, is one version or another of the idea that when someone suffers, they must have done something to deserve it. Because God being God, and God being good, and God being fair, bad things surely don't happen to people who don't deserve it. And again, there is surely some truth to that. As in, for example, when we abuse our bodies for years on end in one way or another, or abuse the earth for centuries on end in one way or another, and we end up suffering because of it, and that suffering in that case is the result of the sinner suffering for their sins. But again, when we take that answer of ours to all suffering, and everyone's suffering, we end up inevitably not comforting the suffering, but judging them whether that was our intent or not. In the book of Job, that's what Job's church friends did to him when he lost all that he lost, including his children, to tragedy and violence. And they say to him, Job, you've got to do some soul searching here and then come clean. I mean, we've, we've always looked up to you, Job. We've, we've always thought you were a good person. But Job, you must have done something. Because in our almighty and good God's world, bad things don't happen to good people. At the end of the book of Job, God shows up and says to Job's church friends, Theologically speaking, you people are morons and need to shut up. It's my paraphrase, but I stand by it. It is the bad things only happen to bad people stance that Jesus takes on in our gospel reading today when some in the crowd who had gathered around him to hear him, says Luke, told him, quote, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, unquote. We don't know if Jesus already knew this apparently heinous act they're referring to. We don't know, Jesus himself being a Galilean, if they told him this by way of asking if any of those Galileans were people he knew. Like people a couple weeks ago asked my wife if those people in Winterset who died were anyone she knew. We don't know exactly what is the actual specific incident being referred to here because it's not mentioned anywhere else, either in scripture or in history books. The history books part, of course, does not surprise me because in this power-drunk world, the slaying of the powerless by the powerful seeking to maintain or expand their power is so commonplace as to not even be worthy of the world's daily news in many cases, much less its history books. We do know that Pontius Pilate was ruthless and not afraid of enforcing Roman rule with ruthlessness and bloodshed. We do know that by the time we reach this story here in Luke 13, the day is drawing ever nearer when Pilate will kill another Galilean, mixing that Galilean's blood 
with the blood of sacrificed Passover lambs. And we do know, it's right there to be seen, or actually technically right there not to be seen, that Jesus in this text didn't offer one single comment about Pilate, or Putin for that matter. Nor did he use the occasion to offer his explanation of indeed why bad things happen to good Ukrainians. Rather, what he used the occasion to say, says Luke, is this. Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. We, many of us, if not most of us, I think, do want to explain suffering so that I think we can convince ourselves that we have some control and can therefore keep suffering from happening to us. Jesus here, on the other hand, who's been trying to get his thick-headed disciples and us to understand that he came precisely to suffer and to die for the suffering and the dying, doesn't here take the bait and then explain why in God's world people do painfully suffer or tragically die. What he does do is turn us from blaming victims to turn us toward repentance. Because the unrepentant, he says, will perish, just like those who were killed for whatever reason Pontius Pilate, being powerfully ruthless, did to that group of Galilean pilgrims, and just like those 18 who were killed when that tower collapsed the way it did, the reason, says Jesus, being not their sin, but rather, well, presumably, they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. As we preachers are known to say in our text studies together on weeks like this, this is a bugger of a text, isn't it? You must repent, Jesus says, or the same fated death will come your way. One thing to note, in both Hebrew and Greek, the word for repentance has to do with turning, in the sense of both turning from and turning toward as in turning from the world and its way to turn toward God and God's ways, turning from sin to turn toward obedience, turning from self-interests to turn to the interests of God, turning from reliance on self to turn toward reliance on God, turning from unbelief to turn toward faith. The Hebrew word, however, also carries another dimension, as in repentance involving not just turning, but also returning. Repentance, therefore, meaning precisely not a turn to some place we've never been, but a return to who we were created by God to be in the first place. Sometimes we humans <clears throat> explain our sin by saying that we're only human. The Hebrews would disagree. They understood our sin to be attributable to the fact that we've turned away from what it by God means, 
truly to be human. <clears throat> Another thing to note, in Luke's Greek in this text, the word you <clears throat> is plural. As in, you all of you must repent or you all of you will likewise perish. One more thing to note as well, the Greek word here translated as perish <clears throat> is not the normal Greek word for dying, as in she took her last breath and died. The word translated as perishing here refers rather to being blotted out entirely, utterly destroyed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Forty years or so after Jesus said these words, Jerusalem's temples, towers, and walls would be utterly destroyed. When legions of Romans came to town to quash a rebellion against Rome, and who in doing so would mix the blood of legions of Jews with the rubble. And the temple has never been rebuilt, <clears throat> seemingly never will be. There are some, and I'm among them, who believe that at least part of what Jesus is doing here is foreshadowing that, warning of that, telling those who've been rejecting the kingdom of love and mercy and forgiveness and grace that he's come announcing to hang on tightly rather to the bricks and mortar and towers and ways and means of their temples and fortresses, that that orientation to life would bring not life but death their way <clears throat> right here in this world 40 years or so to come. And by extension, he's also telling us <clears throat> excuse me, that by rejecting the kingdom of love and mercy and forgiveness and grace that he's come announcing to hang on tightly rather to the bricks and mortar and walls and towers and ways and means of our temples and fortresses will bring not life but death our way. Others, and I'm among them as well, believe that part of what Jesus is doing here as well is speaking of the world to come, the kingdom to come, when in fact none of us in the end escape dying, but rather all of us will die. His message being in that case that that's something you don't want to do without repenting, without turning to the one who will die to live again, and who, no matter what the pilots Thank you. Or Putin's or tragic circumstances of this world do dish out. We'll walk the valley of the shadow of death with his, with his own and turn then in their direction to speak their names as he raises them from the dead. <clears throat> But there's finally in this text, I think, a third dimension. As Jesus refers here not to the day someday, when we will all die, or 40 years from now, when many will die, but refers rather here and now to say about every single day and every moment of every day, repent. Turn from self-interest to the interests of God. Turn from the ways of the world to turn to the ways of God. Turn this day and every day from whom you've too often chosen to be to return to who you were created to be, 
by the one whose creating love loved you into being. And do so each and every day. Why? Do so each and every day because the consequence of not doing so, the consequences of not obedience but sin are grave. Pun intended. Graves being places where death resides and rules. The image Jesus uses for this each and every day turning and returning from death to life is the image in this case of a fig tree planted for the purpose of bearing fruit. A fig tree that doesn't bear fruit, he says, is dead, even as it still stands there. And so too, he seems pretty clearly to be saying, faith that doesn't bear fruit is dead too, even if it still stands to recite its creeds. One more thing to note, in the parable of the gardener of the, vi- uh, of the vineyard, the gardener tells the owner of the vineyard to let the seemingly dead tree alone for one more year while he does everything he can to nurture and fertilize it into fruit-bearing. Interestingly, the Greek word translated here as let it alone is the same Greek root word which can also be translated as forgive it. Jesus, of course, is on his way to Jerusalem to be nailed to the dead timber of a fruitless tree for the forgiveness of our sin, the forgiveness of our negligence in bringing life to the world by bearing good fruit, born of faith in God that seeks after the desires of God's own heart, and forgiveness, too, for our complicity in bringing death to the world, by bearing the sour and toxic fruit born of faith, if you can even call it that, that sees nothing beyond the desires of its own heart and is therefore here and now walking dead. Repent, Jesus says. Turn to me, Jesus says, his own gaze on you and on a cross. And I will forgive, Jesus says. I do forgive, Jesus says. Forgiveness of all your sin being what it alone can be. The fertilizer that the soil of human hearts need to bear the most precious and luscious and life-giving fruit the world has ever seen or tasted. One last thing to note. An individual fruit tree doesn't actually personally gain anything by producing fruit. Rather, fertilized and nurtured by sun, rain, soil, and maybe some manure, it expends energy. It gives of itself to produce fruit, which will then become either the beginning of a new fruit tree, or nourishment for humans or animals who eat it, or if it falls to the ground and dies there, nourishment for the soil. It doesn't bear fruit to gain anything for itself. It bears fruit to do its part 
in giving life to the world. And why does it do that? Because doing so is to be what God created it to be. I love you, Jesus says. I forgive you, Jesus says. Repent, Jesus says. And rooted ever in the soil of my love and my forgiving grace, in this world where too many are walking dead and sowing seeds of death, be who you were created to be. And in doing so, at long last and truly, live. Live my love and my loving desires for you and my world. Amen.